We are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Our reading will begin in verse 5. This may be the longest story I ever tell you. Last week we looked at four verses. This week we're moving from verses 5 through 80. Don't gasp, it hurts my feelings. There's good reason for that, as I hope to show you. How many of you are nervous when you hear we're going from verse 5 to verse 80? Dads, congratulations if your wife and the mother of your children went to the women's retreat and you're here anyway with the children. Good job, okay? You've done what your wife would do every other Sunday of the year without thinking about it. So, uh, it's funny how men, and I'm starting with myself, take credit for ordinary things, right? We'll grill the steaks and say, I cooked. Well, she bought the groceries, prepared the vegetables, decorated, did all the cleaning, but we cooked, right, because we put the steaks on the grill. That may just be my house. I'm not sure. My wife will tell you I struggle to do even that. In the Gospel of Luke, everybody have your Bible? Okay, good. In the Gospel of Luke, I showed you last week that for the first four verses, writing a single polished Greek sentence, Luke very painstakingly signaled to the reader, what I'm going to tell you next is history. He used a literary form common to his day to introduce himself to the reader a Greek man by the name of Theophilus, evidently a Roman dignitary who had been converted to Jesus. And he said, Theophilus, many people have written the things down that were fulfilled in our time, and it seemed good to me to investigate them carefully, to trace out these events, and to set them down in an orderly fashion so that you would have certainty about the things you've been taught about Jesus. And it's one magisterial sentence in four verses in the Greek language that Luke used to write. And I showed you last week, if you were here last week, if not, I'd encourage you to go to the podcast and, and listen. There's remarkable, literally unparalleled, completely unmatched evidence for the historical reliability of the Gospels. We take for granted things that Roman historians tell us about the Caesars in as few as three manuscripts, and the New Testament has 5,600 manuscripts. There's no doubt about what they wrote. The question is whether they will believe it. And the reason people struggle to believe the Gospels is not because there is compelling, life-staggering, otherwise unexplainable evidence, but because of the supernatural things that the Gospels tell us. And that's what begins next in the fifth verse. And I'll just tell you, you have a challenge as 21st century Americans as you read this story because it is utterly supernatural and Luke's writes about it with the normalcy of someone telling you who won last night's game. He's writing history. He hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't changed his topic. He's now going to reveal to you how God intervened in history. And it's entirely natural if God is intervening in a way that he promised thousands of years earlier in human history to find supernatural things because God himself is supernatural. God cannot be explained by natural causes. 
but there's absolutely nothing in the American mind and what frankly is miseducation for decades that conditions someone who lives in the United States in the 21st century to have any room whatsoever for things that cannot be explained by natural causes. Would we agree on that? Atheist professors and intellectuals who are secularists and materialists, meaning they believe that all there is is matter, have their own faith because they cannot explain how we came into being. They say that something happened. Brilliant men who've written well-regarded works have said on camera that life may have been seeded here by aliens. Well, that's plausible, but that doesn't explain the problem. Where did the aliens come from? Or that life somewhere found its way to earth on crystals. Well, that's great, but where did the crystals come from, and how was life ever found on them in the first place? I'm not kidding. You can, you can watch them. Why is that? Because both systems, whether you're a materialist that says matter is all there is, or there is a God who simply is, who spoke everything into being, as the Bible tells us, both of those systems ultimately require, in the final step backward to the beginning, both require faith. And you have to believe in something resembling eternal matter that the matter that this piano is made of has simply somehow always been here, or that there was a God who was always there who spoke that matter into being. Make sense? So understand that when you read the Gospel of Luke and you read the Bible in all of its ordinary, now Luke's Greek is going to become quite conversational, and he's going to tell you almost like a fireside chat. After all, this is one doctor telling a Gentile convert about Jesus, here's what happened, here's how the story and the life of Jesus on earth began. It's going to be very ordinary, but it's going to have mind-blowing supernatural events. Old women are going to have babies well past their childbearing years, and something else is going to happen that's never happened before in human history. What is that? A virgin woman is going to have a child. Well, how can that be? Well, this is the Son of God, perfectly 100% human and 100% deity human to take my place, to enter into my experience, to face my temptations, and obey God perfectly as I refuse to do, and deity so that His death in my place would be sufficient to cover not only my sins, but yours and the world's. Let's read Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Notice the specificity. He's writing history. He's writing within the lifetime of these people, and people who knew them saying this is how it started. It started with an ordinary family. It wasn't once ago, long away, a man came from the east. No. There was Zechariah and Elizabeth, and he was a priest, and she was also a descendant from the daughters of Aaron. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. As you read, read slowly, 
Part of me telling this long Bible story in this way is to give you some clues of how to read it yourself. So, I ask myself when I read this, what sort of people were the, were, was this couple? Were they good people or bad people? They were good people. They weren't perfect, but they were what the Bible calls blameless. In other words, they were people of integrity, of genuine faith and obedience to God. You would have been delighted to have them in your circle of friends. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. That's heartbreak. That's heartbreak for practically any couple. It's especially difficult in their age, in their culture, because parents in this culture depend upon their children in their old age. No check is coming from the central government. And they had read in the Hebrew Scriptures that children are a heritage and a reward from the Lord. So, the unspoken belief among practically everybody in Israel is, if you can't have kids, what might be going on? You're wrong with God. And still, we're told they're righteous. They walk with God. They obey Him. Now, while serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Let me tell you about this man's duties. Two weeks a year, he left his village to serve the temple. At this time, scholars believe there were some 18,000 priests in Israel. And once a year, chosen by lot, he would be the one to offer the sacrifice. This is the biggest moment of Zechariah's life. He's come in from the villages where he taught people in a very day-to-day -day setting. People would bring him complicated family problems. He would remind them of what the Scripture said. Now he is offering. His time has come. And while the people wait outside for him, something amazing happens. Verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Just like that, just as if it were as ordinary as giving a genealogy. God intervenes, and a messenger, an angel of the Lord, stands on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. One thing you need to know about the Bible is it majors on understatement. He was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth." For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Is this good news or bad news? Astonishing. Zechariah, you're an old man, and on the best day of your life, I have even better news. Your prayer has been heard. I wonder how long ago Zechariah had submitted to the will of God and stopped praying for a baby. He must have. 
He's just an ordinary priest from a village. He's from the Judean countryside. He's an important man in his nation, but he's one of 18,000. <laughs> one of 18,000. You imagine being one of 18,000, no matter how important the task, no matter how sacred the work, you're one of 18,000. And on the best day of his life, as he continues to do the best he can, and the heartbreak and the disappointment with God has been numbed because he has moved on to obedience. That's one thing this story tells me. Righteous people are often disappointed with God. But what makes them righteous is they continue to walk with Him. It's very likely that almost all of you walked into this place to worship God, carrying with you some disappointment with Him. Because you can see how life should go, can't you? Can't, can't you see how life should go? I can. If you don't know how life should go, ask me. I'll, I've got good ideas, even for your own life. I mean, I, I think single people who want to be married and want to marry godly people should be married and have lots of kids. We need good people having more kids. And I think that men who need work and want to work and are desperately looking for work just to provide for their families and keep the landlord from kicking them out, I think they should have work. I mean, I can see how life should go for myself and a lot of people. Elizabeth and Zechariah knew how life should go. They had read the psalm that says, children are a treasure and a reward from the Lord. And they had prayed for years, and no child had come. And now a very special child will come. His name will be John, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Zechariah understood what that mean, meant because in the Old Testament, very special occasions, God placed His Holy Spirit on people for tasks of leadership. That's why David prayed in Psalm 51 after his adultery with Bathsheba, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. What he's afraid of is, I've sinned so grievously that God has done with me the way He was once done with Saul. Christians live in an entirely different and far better time and grace from God because Romans 8, 9 says if someone does not have the Holy Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. But everything that Zechariah has ever prayed for is coming true and more because this child in fulfillment of promises that God had made centuries and centuries earlier will be the first messenger to the Messiah, and he's going to do something that governments try to do in vain. He's going to turn the hearts of children back to their fathers. Did you see that? Would to God that in blood-soaked, war-torn America, the, son, the hearts of the children would turn back to their fathers. Have fathers in the first place. John is going to do an amazing work He's going to heal the nation and prepare a people ready to receive their Savior. John is not their Savior, but he will do amazing work turning the nation and repentance back to God so that when Messiah, the one that God had promised, finally comes, they'll be ready. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Let me ask you, did he believe him? 
He said, can I have some proof? Can I get a receipt on that? Because I'm old and the incense in here is thick. And Have you seen my wife? Love her dearly, but he asks a very normal question, doesn't he? I'm old and she's, this might be the Garner paraphrase, I'm old but she's in even worse shape. I mean, how could this possibly be? I'm just reading the Bible, folks. We understand how the biology works, right? That clock ticks faster for women than it does for men. It's always been that way. Zechariah knows this. How can this be? How shall I know this? What sign may I have? Careful not believing God. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Uh Uh-oh. You want a sign? I'm Gabriel. I daily stand in the presence of God to do His will. I came. This is... This is literally, it belongs in the Bible stuff. I came to give you good news and you didn't believe it, so here's a sign. You won't be able to speak for the duration of your wife's pregnancy. Yeah. Somebody's on to it. How might that pregnancy have gone? This is not good. Among the most righteous people on earth, it's not going to help anything at home if he can't talk for nine months. And every time he can't speak, I wonder if she looked at him and shook her head. Like, why couldn't you just believe? If you've had a kid, you would understand the dynamics of why it might be a little extra difficult at the old Zechariah and Elizabeth home. The people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. Notice what it meant to her. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. That's one story. A man who walked with God, who was disappointed with God, but loved him still and obeyed him still. And there's a, that's not the main point of the story, but there's a huge lesson there for you. Because if you follow Jesus long enough, you will be disappointed in life. And you had written a better script with a better outcome. You will be disappointed. Faith means continuing to follow even when you don't understand why God won't speak and why God won't act, why you endure this disappointment. But God's not done. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed, meaning legally married but not yet his wife, not yet in his home, to a man who was named, whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which literally means Savior. He will be even greater than John. Listen. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. In other words, David hasn't been on the scene for a thousand years, but his heir will finally come, and the kingdom of God will be at hand because the king of God will walk on earth, and the promises that seemed shattered by this Roman occupation and these pagan conquerors who daily insult us. That's all about to end because there will be a new king and his reign, his throne will have no end. He will reign forever. Mary's at the same decision point that Zechariah was, isn't she? It's an equally difficult miracle. Very old ladies don't have babies, and virgin women don't have babies. How's she going to react? Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, you may think that the Gabriel was a little tough on Zechariah, but compare their questions. Do you see a difference? Zechariah said, prove it. She said, what? How? She didn't say, I I don't believe it. She just wondered how God was going to do it. I know that's true because of what follows. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There is the deity of Jesus from the very beginning. Mary may have remembered all the way back to Isaiah 700 years earlier, as Matthew's gospel tells us, that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son, and he will save his people from their sins. And it's the most amazing thing in the world, because who is she again? What's her lineage? Are we told here? You have to read the next chapter to find out her family tree. Here's the, here's the point. She's just an ordinary believer. She's walked her whole life with God, but her aspirations are all going to be met by marrying a guy named Joseph who was the town carpenter and mason in a no-account town named Nazareth. A town that was, you keep reading your Gospels, you'll find out that whole region, Nazareth in particular, was kind of the backwater. If someone made it big from Nazareth, they didn't say, hey, I'm from Nazareth. We have towns like that, right? People quickly claim New York or L.A., right? Shout it, New York! Make songs about it. Nobody's, they might be happy with it, but nobody's putting a headline out that they're from Crane, Texas. Nobody knows where that is. Nobody cares. And 
kind of likely to say, well, I'm sorry, you know, good job coming out of that. She's just an ordinary believer from Nazareth. She was on her way to making final preparations from her family's side for the best day of her life, which would be a wedding. And God interrupts the whole thing. And we've read the happy part, but she's also counting up the social cost. You understand what I mean? Everybody knows that these two, in obedience to God, are kept separate. Everybody knows they're only engaged. They're not yet married. And now she's going to be pregnant. You know how real that was? You can read the Gospel of John later, and Jesus' opponents will say things like this, hey, we know who our Father is. I've heard about you. Beginning your story a little shaky, don't you think, Jesus? I mean, we know Joseph claims you, but… And that which is used as a bludgeon for shame in our culture 2,000 years later was very nearly a social death sentence for this young girl. And look how she responds. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. How can either of those things be? Can you read verse 37 with me if you're reading my translation? Let's read that together. The Bible says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Your relative Elizabeth, the old lady, funniest thing. She's six months pregnant. She's struggling for her balance. Except she's not young and strong like women normally are. She's elderly. But if you go to her house, you'll see the strangest sight. An old woman is already pregnant, and in the same way, God will overshadow you, and you will bear the Son of God. And through that miracle, provide a man who is also God. God will become a man. John explained it this way, the Word became flesh. The Word that was always there, that was with the Father from the very beginning, that created all things, that Word became flesh. And John said, He dwelt among us. We saw His glory. Why? Because God became a man, and Mary, a young woman, at best, I think, a late teenager, at the eldest, said this, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Here's your servant. Do whatever you say. I'm available. That's the difference. That's a difference between Zechariah and Elizabeth. The angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, look, it started early with John the Baptist. The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. John the Baptist and Jesus are related. Most people think cousins. We can't be entirely sure. But now the forerunner, the lead blocker, the announcer is six months in the womb. Mary's just getting started. And when Mary speaks, John the Baptist, as was promised, from the womb God is at work in his life, leaps for joy. And Mary shows me her heart because on the spot, I'm sure, under the blessing and the grace of God, speaks one of the most beautiful songs of praise ever. What follows is so magnificent that J.S. Bach wrote a song about it called the Magnificat. That's its name in Latin. Listen to it. It's about half an hour with the choir. It's not part of Scripture, but I think the composer did well to capture some of the majesty and the reverence of what Mary said because she said, my soul magnifies the Lord My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, and practically every phrase she says is Old Testament, is Hebrew Scripture. Another indication of the righteous. When their lives break open, either in suffering or praise, what comes pouring out are not their thoughts, but the very words of God. That's why I'm pleading with you and pleading with my family and anyone I care about, stay in your Bible so that it fills and forms your heart so that when you rejoice and when you suffer, God speaks to you through what He's already told you in writing. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, for he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Two thousand years earlier, God had made these promises to Abraham. And Mary can't believe that she... An ordinary girl is going to be the focal point of God's promises being kept. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown a great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. Now look, this is comedy. You have a sense of humor because God has a sense of humor. Are you aware of that? You and I aren't especially clever. We're made in the image of God, and He is filled with both justice and humor. I want you to see this. They made signs to His Father. Why signs? That's kind of funny. He can't talk. Why are they making signs to Him? This has been going on for so long that this man has been reduced to a pretty absurd position for anyone, much less a priest, right? They motion him over. 
And they asked him, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And his father asked for a writing tablet and wrote what? His name is John. <laughs> the last time God spoke to me about this, I doubted. And I haven't said a word since. His name is John. And they all wondered. Because the custom was, you gave a family name. Look. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke doing what? Blessing God. He hasn't grown bitter. He's grown grateful. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And this is just John the Baptist. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, and again, the Hebrew Scripture surged through his song, his prophecy, his biblical teaching. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, again, 2,000 years earlier, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Now He speaks to His son, John. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Why is the story here? So that you would know this. God uses normal people to do the impossible. That's what God does. God uses ordinary people to do impossible things. Who's Zechariah? He's one of 18,000. Who is Mary? just a girl. Luke later will give you her genealogy, but she's in a good line, no doubt about it. All the promises had been kept, but there was absolutely nothing extraordinary about her. It was the grace of God that did this. What is remarkable is her faith. But the point of this is that God uses normal people to do the impossible because that's how He gets the glory. If you read this story in any way that brings glory to Mary or Elizabeth or Zechariah, you will have missed his point, and that's why their songs are there. Who are they pointing back to because of the miracles received? Back to God. You're doing this. Promises you made to our ancestors, promises you made to Abraham that in his family somehow all the clans, tribes, and nations of the earth will be blessed. You're doing that in our day using us, and God gets the glory. 
Now understand this. When God uses you because that's what He desires to do with every person, your story and what God uses you to do will not be on the scale of what He did through Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah. It just won't. There's only one Savior of the world, and He only had one lead blocker, one forerunner named John. But God, every day, because He desires to have all the glory, He desires to do all sorts of good and get all the glory for Himself, God will, until He finishes His work on earth, will continue to use ordinary people every single day. That's all He has to work with. You know who He has? He has you and me. Look around. We're a pretty cool bunch, but we're not much. We're fragile. You know, I've got a son at college now, and every time he calls, I'm happy to see the name, but my heart also skips just a little bit, and I don't know if this is saying hi or something terrible's happened. You know the feeling, parents? And I listen, how is he going to say hello? Hey, Dad. Okay. We're fragile. We're ordinary. But God uses ordinary people to do the impossible because that's how He gets the glory. But when He uses you, understand this, He may call you to suffering or blessing. Someone else would speak to Mary the day she and Joseph presented Jesus. You can keep reading the Gospel of Luke and you'll see this. On the day He was presented... A man speaking on behalf of God looked at Mary and said, a sword will pierce your soul. He said, this child you've brought to dedicate to the Lord, he's going to be opposed. And Mary, a sword will run right through the middle of you. Some 33 years later, perhaps she remembered that day as she watched her son die. See, Mary was used by God as an ordinary woman to do an extraordinary thing, to be a vessel of God's grace, to bring the Son of God into the world in the way that babies are always born with blood and water and pain and groans and finally laughter and joy and relief that all is well. But every day of her life, she bore the social stigma of the way this extraordinary life began. And then they took her baby boy and they killed him. So we need to be honest with Scripture. See, the pep talk, God is your coach, says, God can use you to do extraordinary things and you're going to love every minute of it. God does use ordinary people to do extraordinary things, but you may cry your way through it too. With all the joy and all the happiness and all the redemptive purposes of God being fulfilled right in front of your eyes, what things Mary saw? She saw her son turn water to wine, remember? That was her idea in the first place, remember? Hey, they're out of wine. What's that have to do with me? Just take care of it. And she told the servants, just do whatever he says. You won't believe what my son can do. So her life 
was joys and pride like no what mother has ever known and pain like very few women will ever feel to watch her son publicly executed. A sword didn't run through her soul. Why? Because God uses ordinary people to do His impossible, miraculous work, and you may experience that as a pure blessing as Elizabeth did. By the time they killed John, I'm reasonably sure she was with the Lord already. Her path was different from Mary's. She probably just had the quiet pride of a Jewish mom every day of her life knowing that this boy would be used in extraordinary ways and very little pain mingled with it, not Mary. Why am I telling you this? If you judge the work of God and the call of God on your life on whether it feels good and it feels like a blessing or whether it's hard and it feels like suffering, you'll very likely miss a great deal of what God is calling you to do. What sorts of things has Jesus told us to do? terribly difficult, painful things. Love our enemies and pray for them. Give generously. If we're poor, Jesus told His disciples, sell what you have and give to the poor. Jesus taught us to pray as He did, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the point of physical agony, He said, what? Not my will, yours be done. Jesus told us to witness, and that comes at a cost. So many of the things that Jesus tells us to do as ordinary people to do His impossible work come at a high cost. So, here's the point of the story. When God calls you, say yes. Be like Mary. Don't be like Zechariah, good as he was, righteous as he was, faithful as he was. Be like Mary and say, Lord, here is your servant. I hear the cost already. I don't even know how much it will cost me ultimately, but here is your servant. May it be done with me just as you said. You say, when will God speak to me? Oh, listen, He does. He has. It's right here. Don't go home and wait for skywriting. Don't wait for a mystical experience in the middle of the night. He's already spoken. What did he say? He said, love. Love your God supremely and love your neighbor as yourself. That's impossible without him. He said, be generous, self-sacrificial givers, because Jesus said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses starting here all the way to the end of the earth. He said, parents, don't be harsh with your children. Instead, raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Combining two letters from Paul. Is that easy? It's very difficult. God's calling. Say yes. Let's put a point of application on it. Will you look in your bulletin and find this little card? Here's how we're going to close. A little white card. It's a little white rectangle. One side has print on it. And it says, I find it hardest to trust and obey God when it comes to… Here's what I want you to do. Let me tell you up front what I'm doing. 
I want you to anonymously write down what is hardest for you to trust and obey God with. Just whatever comes immediately to mind. You go, well, there's so many. That's okay. Write them down. You got two or three things? Write them down. Don't put your name on it because what I want you to do as we conclude this service is I would love for you to return these to us in the offering basket without your name for two reasons. One, it'll help you put a name on it and say when it comes to trusting and obeying God, it's hard for me to… what is it? Is it forgiving people who've wronged you, loving your enemies? Is it witnessing? Is it giving? What is it? Name it. And then if you'll do me the favor of returning it to us without your name, it will help me amazingly as a pastor know where we are as a congregation and how to pray, how to counsel, how to teach. Will you help me with that? I'll give you 30 seconds. You know what your hang-ups are. Just write them down. Don't look at your neighbors. That's his deal with God. Father, as Christians are writing down what's hardest for them, you know what it is for me. Help us in that specific instance to know Your will and to say as Mary, may it happen. May it be done with us just as You have said. We are Your servants. We're not here for our, on our own agenda, pursuing our own plan. We're here for You. If there's anyone here, Lord, who does not know You as Savior, I pray that they would turn their hearts to You and ask You in faith to save them even now that they would say to you that they're sorry, deeply repentant for their sins, and they trust you to be the Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for living and dying so that I could be saved, and countless others in fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham could find that you truly are the Savior of the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.